Hello, my name is Tom Boone. And I'm Joanna Bailey. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Simple Flying Podcast, where we'll give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Here's what we got for you this week. Coming up today, I'll take a look at JetBlue's first ever mint reworking, and Tom will tell us about Lufthansa's longest flight to date. Joe will review the UK flight ban for the UAE, and I'll look at more good news for the Boeing 737 MAX. Finally, I'll end the show by telling you why, if you're in Europe over the next few weeks, you should keep your eyes on the skies for a very rare bird. So now you know what's in store, let's get on with the show. And I wanted you to start this week, Joe, because I know there's something you're very excited to tell all our listeners about. I am. I'm incredibly excited. And uh, we've been waiting a long time for this announcement, to be honest. And mm. uh, it's great that it's finally come out this week. So um, JetBlue has revealed the stunning seats it's going to be offering to its passengers on its flights between the US and Europe. So uh, we're expecting JetBlue to announce a start date for its services in the summer. Um, using its A321LRs. Um, And of course, we knew that they'd be doing something special with their Mint product, and now we know what it is. Mm. Um, And to be honest, this is going to be a total game changer for transatlantic flying. So they've gone basically for the Thompson Aero Vantage solo seat. Um, This was a a design that was originally conceived by our friends at Factory Design in London. Um, Thompson put it into production, but then JetBlue has actually employed its own design agency to give it a rather unique and very JetBlue twist. Um, So for passengers that are going to be travelling mint, and I hope you all will be, (laughs) every seat will now be a suite in the premium cabin. So um, on JetBlue's current mint cabin in domestic US, only four seats have the kind of one-one suite layout. The other 12 are arranged in a two-two layout. Um, But for their transatlantic services, every passenger is going to have a seat to themselves, complete with a fully flat bed and a sliding door. themselves oh you know what i mean though you don't have a neighbor <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you've got a you've got a whole little room to yourself it looks yeah. awesome um do check out the images on simpleflying.com um and this cabin so it's going to be in a reverse herringbone layout um, and the passengers are going to face away from the window now i know this is going to cause some contention it's very similar to the solution if you follow pax x which i do that stellia aerospace has brought us known as opera which is mm. also a solution for single aisle planes um but stellia chose to face towards the window and I guess that's kind of good for cloud gazers but it does look less convenient for getting back into the aisle if you want to go to the loo anyway that's going to be something that I'll leave you to debate BA on the A350 are angled away from the windows um, towards the aisle yeah the old Virgin Atlantic upper that had the herringbone arrangement was also away from the windows and I Hmm. do think you know it's nice to look out the window but it's nicer to be able to get out of your seat if you need to as well so um, yeah yeah, as I, I say, I've got that wrong. Actually, it's it is towards the window. That's my bad. Oh, is it on oh, BA? Is yeah. It? Yeah. Ah, Virgin always faced into the aisle. So mm. uh, anyway, we'll leave you to debate which one looks better. I think this one looks amazing. Um, and JetBlue has brought what it calls residential touches. So these are like things that you'd expect to find in your own home. Um, okay. The examples they gave are concrete lampshades. I'm not quite sure what those are. <laughs> and vegan le- leather covered seats. Um, but they do look gorgeous. They really do. And we already heard from them about the refresh of the soft products last year. Mm. Um, so 
in line with that, they've gone with a company called Tuft and Needle for the sleep experience. So every single seat has the Tuft and Needle adaptive foam, um, a convertible blanket with a foot pocket, which sounds lovely, um, a memory foam lined pillow and a snooze kit with an eye mask and earplugs. Um, and the airlines also teased a first of its kind mood lighting, which uh, I can't wait to see in real life. Um, okay. I guess it's hard to explain in a press release, but uh, due to COVID restrictions, we weren't able to go to their demonstration at JFK last week. Um, but never mind, we got some wonderful photos and I can't wait to see it in practice. But, mm. and I haven't got to the best bit yet, oh. <laughs> all of this good stuff and still the best bit. Um, that I really like is the Upfront Mint Studio. Now, this is a completely new product to JetBlue and it will be just the first row. So there's two of these on each of the A321s. And these two little studios really increase the real estate massively. So there's like the normal seat, but then there's also an additional bench seat for a guest to join you for dinner and a movie, if you like. Oh, okay. Or even if you just fancy a change of scenery, you can go, kind of go and sit on the sofa for a little bit. Mm. Um, there's a bigger table, so it's going to be much easier to do some work while you're in flight. And there's also a bigger IFE screen. So you get 22 inches as opposed to 17. And all put together, this makes the biggest lie flat bed of any airline operating out of the US or any US airline, I should say. Um, so it's really exciting. I'm sure you can tell I'm just like, <laughs> it's so exciting to finally see what they've done. Um, and if you're wanting to see it in person, you'll have a little bit longer to wait because the, the cabin's going to take flight on JetBlue's transatlantic services this summer. Mm. But more excitingly, there's also a smaller layout with the same seats, but just 16 seats in the cabin that will appear on a limited selection of transcontinental New York to LA flights. So you've got to think that the other airlines are shaking in their boots right now because you know that they're going to be pricing these flights absolutely aggressively. Mm. And, you know, for a premium life flat experience going across the Atlantic or even transcontinentally in the US, this is a real game changer. I love it. I absolutely love it. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see, see it and I can't wait to see photos of you on it when JetBlue eventually launches transatlantic flights. Definitely. I will be one of the first, I'm sure. So, uh, so from a flight that's happening in the summer to one that happened just this week, Tom, where's Lufthansa been going? Yep. So I know I talked a lot about Lufthansa last week, but again, for today, my big story is Lufthansa. And this week, the airline is in the spotlight because it clocked the longest flight of its history since it was founded following the Second World War. Wow. So yesterday afternoon, or yesterday afternoon as we record this on Monday, so when you hear it, not yesterday, um, a Lufthansa Airbus A350-900 departed Frankfurt bound for Hamburg. And while it's unusual for Lufthansa to fly an A350 to Hamburg, the aircraft's next leg would be more, even more impressive. At 9.23, seven minutes ahead of schedule, the aircraft Delta Alpha India X-Ray Papa departed from Hamburg with 16 members of crew and 92 passengers. And these 16 members of crew had been picked from, I think, about 500 applicants or so um, for this flight. But wow. what makes it so special, you're asking? I am asking, what does make it so special? <laughs> the aircraft's destination was not one that we would usually see the German flag carrier flying to. So having departed from Hamburg, the aircraft set a course for the Falkland Islands off the coast of Argentina. Ooh. And there was a whole sort of diplomatic thing about this as well. Um, but we're not going to go into that. We're just going to talk no. about the aviation side of things. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so the 92 passengers on board the flight are due to join the Polar Stern research vessel on an Antarctic expedition. And 
like they've done this many times before, but given the current travel restrictions that are in place, everything just had to be a little bit more different this time, which necessitated this unique flight. So, so far, the Falkland Islands has mostly escaped the COVID-19 pandemic with over only 41 cases having been registered to date, um, oh, which it sounds quite impressive. But then the population of the Falkland Islands is only about um, two and a half thousand. So oh. um, <laughs> still a would, fair few cases per head of population. Yeah, I guess. a fair few cases per head of population. But the, in, the, aver- the seven day average has never gone above one case per 100,000, so... Oh, nice. Um, so that's quite nice, but then... Doing um, a bit better than uh, the rest of us, then. <laughs> Yeah. Well, especially Germany right now, although we're getting better, we're still kind of a hot spot. And as such, Lufthansa wanted to ensure that it didn't bring the virus to the island, because you can just I imagine that did. headline. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to ensure this, everybody on board the aircraft had been in two weeks of quarantine before leaving Germany. And um, to make sure it was all like kept that way, passengers and crew were bused to Hamburg airports um, and they used an unused area of the terminal so they could completely avoid, avoid interaction with any other passengers who might be infected or um, even if somebody had travelled through the day before and touched something that just hadn't been cleaned, you know. Um, so while quarantine may sound like a horrible way to spend 14 days, um, it doesn't seem to have been the case for the crew that Lufthansa selected. So to keep its staff healthy and happy, the airline put on a series of online information and sports sessions and despite being confined to their rooms, the crew undertook a 10,000 step challenge in the first week of quarantine. Which, Just in their rooms? Yeah, I find that <laughs> fairly incredible as I struggle to hit so many steps in a day that I'm out and about in Frankfurt. Yeah. <laughs> I walk the dog twice a day and don't get that many usually. <laughs> yeah, so the crew was also treated to presentations from the scientists flying down to the Falkland Islands, though, which I thought was fascinating. Um, mm. And clearly Lufthansa thought this, this was fascinating as well because they opened up these presentations to the other Lufthansa employees and thousands of hundreds of employees watched them live. Cool. Um, so now the aircraft is expected to depart from Mount Pleasant on Wednesday as LH2575. Uh, but rather than returning to Hamburg where it departed, it's going to fly back to Munich, which is Lufthansa's Airbus A350 base. And it's okay. expected to arrive back home at around two o'clock local time on Thursday. Um, so it might even be back by the time you listen to this. But on board the flight, it would be the crew that flew down to the Falkland Islands. And they're also taking the crew that are now leaving the Polar Stern vessel. Cool. That sounds good. So I'd love to have a go on the uh, Polar Stern vessel. It goes to some amazing places, doesn't it? Yeah, although I think I'd rather just go on the Lufthansa A350. <laughs> yeah, especially for 15 hours. That sounds yeah. incredible. Well, That's a very long flight. What I did find incredible was because there was such a low passenger load, um, they had passengers in business class who obviously get a lie flat seat as part of their um, seat. I don't know how they chose who sat where, but um, in economy, every passenger had three or four seats to themselves and they were using the sort of... Um, life flat beds that they've been trialing on the uh, 747s. Oh, right. Yeah. So the, everyone, uh, like couchy things. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone got a life flat bed, um, even if you're in economy, which I think is pretty cool. I'd have rather had the life flat bed up the front, I have I'm to sure. say. But yeah, I'm sure they all appreciate it. I'd rather have the life flat bed on their new 777X if that ever gets delivered. <laughs> but Yeah, we're waiting for the seat reveal on that one because no, that's going to be it. a good one. Oh, have you? Yeah. Sorry, I don't really follow Lufthansa very much because you How always do. You? So no, I trust like... you to fill me in, Tom. Well, no, it's not new. It's like they've that's been around for a couple of years now. 
Uh, well, the plane but, isn't yet, so. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so moving on swiftly to uh, <laughs> avoid the uh, <laughs> dwelling on my lack of Lufthansa news too long. Um, last week, we got the news we were expecting from the UK government, which was that they are going to be requiring a hotel-based quarantine for arrivals from any of their uh, red list countries. Hmm. And at the time of the announcement, they chose not to produce the red list. So we were yeah. kind of <laughs> guessing what was on there from press releases of two weeks before. Anyway, eventually they did give out the rest the red list which was 31 countries at the time um but then literally days later they added more countries onto the red list um notably the uae now dubai in particular has been something of an escape route for lots of brits during lockdown so yeah. there's been all sorts of uproar on social media about influencers going over to dubai to have work trips or whatever they call them um but anyway it's been a fairly free-flowing uh, state of traffic between the two countries it's a, it's a nice place to go to um in fact our boss just spent 10 days there and had a lovely time so um, it's a shame that it's been added to the red list but what that means now is that anybody coming back to the uk really shouldn't be coming back they shouldn't be coming in at all but if they do have a valid reason to travel they need to spend 10 days in self-funded quarantine in a hotel or similar accommodation so Mm. you know this is going to have a massive impact on traffic and of course on the airlines that fly the routes Um, So on Friday last week, Etihad and Emirates both announced they were temporarily ending their UK flights. Um, So uh, Emirates, for example, said on social media, passenger services between Dubai and all our UK points, Birmingham, Glasgow, London and Manchester, have been suspended until further notice. Mm. Now, this is a a really big deal for Emirates. Um, You know, Dubai, London, Heathrow was in January this year the world's busiest international airline route. Um, and while and British Airways, especially for A three three eighties, yeah, probably the only international yeah. airline route with the A three eighty on it right now. Um, so you know, British Airways does have a presence on that corridor, but the vast majority of the seats are on Emirates flights. And in normal times, it's not unusual to see five or six Emirates A three eighties landing at London Heathrow in a day. So. Mm. Um, Prior to COVID, flights between Dubai and various points in the UK made up a quarter of Emirates' entire capacity. Well, so, you know, I just found it fascinating that Emirates was flying to Stansted, Gatwick and Heathrow, you know, like yeah. how many airlines can say that they serve all three of them? Yeah, crazy. And then, of course, they've got Birmingham, Manchester, Glasgow as well. And uh, it's a huge market. There's a, a massive demand for travel between the two points. But yeah. It didn't last long, this flight ban, because this morning, which is Monday, Emirates announced that it's going to be offering one-way flights from London to Dubai starting from tomorrow, which is Tuesday, the 2nd of February. Mm. Um, It's only going to be offering passenger flights uh, from Manchester and London. So Birmingham and Glasgow to Dubai will still run, but they'll be cargo only for the time being. So you can get on an Emirates aircraft to leave the UK and go to Dubai, but but it's not allowing passengers to come back. Well, I don't know. I guess you've got to find some other intelligent route or just stay there. I don't know. Well, I guess you um, you could take a bus to Abu Dhabi and then you could fly with Wizzair to Athens and then you could maybe <laughs> jump on a BA flight back from there. Yeah, it sounds like a bit of a pickle to me. And uh, if I had the choice, I think I'd stay in Dubai. But mm. uh, there you go. Um, I think the the key thing here is that it's an important hub for onward connections as well. So this yeah. isn't just about 
British influencers still being able to go to Dubai and film their glamorous videos. It's about people being able to fly into Dubai and then book onward travel to places like Australia. Yeah. Um, you know, if which, you can even get in there. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's another issue entirely. But yeah. uh, I think, you know, it was understandable that Emirates would put something on and mm. uh, hopefully in time they'll be able to reopen the route coming back into the UK as well because it's not just that direction that's important for connectivity. It's coming back this way as well. You know, people will be connecting in London to go to other places. So yeah, it's I not think, just people travelling between the two. I mean, I think a more sensible approach, even though that sounds a bit like an oxymoron when we're talking about the UK's travel restrictions. Um, <laughs> I think a more sensible approach would maybe say to Emirates, you can't carry passengers originating in Dubai, but if they are connecting in Dubai, then yes. Yeah. Because, you know, or... like, if you're coming from a low-risk place via Dubai... Yeah, you know, exactly. I don't, who knows? Yeah, it's, it's, you know? it's still very tricky. And I think, you know, these new travel bans are going to become even more tricky as the year mm. goes on because of these new variants. And, yeah, well, you know, I we're mean, seeing Germany much tougher has... restrictions than we saw like this time, well, not this time last year, but last March with the original lockdowns. It's yeah. going crazy now. And, and they're doing things that we short, thought they should have done last year now, but for other reasons. So, mm. uh, yeah, let's hope but we all get the vaccine in our arms soon and we can get out of this. What I do find interesting is even though we seem to be in this worse situation than this time last year or April last year, we still seem to have more flights at the moment. So, Yeah, okay. But are they all passenger flights? or? Well, I don't know. Just looking at Ryanair specifically because their results yeah. came out today. Um, well, Ryanair only flies passenger flights, you know. They, would do, they did the odd medical cargo thing for COVID, but they wouldn't necessarily, they wouldn't operate. They don't uh, fly cargo only as a yeah. rule of thumb, do they? Yeah, exactly. So, um they're still flying about. Um, mm. uh, they, the levels are right down, but they're not down as far as... Um, during the first lockdown. Yeah, because during the first one, they were literally flying to 20 destinations a week and not daily. Um, yeah. But now, while their UK and Ireland stuff is really cut, um, you know, elsewhere in Europe, they, they're still going slightly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, somebody must be flying somewhere, but all I know yeah. is it's not me. I'm not going anywhere and I'm a bit fed up about it. So please, please unlock us soon. <laughs> yeah, I haven't flown since November now. God, so long. Goodness me. <laughs> I don't. I think I'm nearly up to a year. I don't even like to think about it. Mm. But uh, anyway, speaking of Ryanair, um, they're looking forward to a new aircraft delivery. And I think that just got a bit better um, well, in the last week, didn't it, Tom? Actually, for Ryanair, not so much. Um, but I will cover that in this section. So last week, we had two high-profile ungroundings of the 737 MAX, which we kind of talked about um, last on last week's podcast. But I wanted to talk about more the technicalities and changes um, that the EASA and CAA have mandated. So firstly, we'll take a look at the changes required by EASA. EASA, obviously covering Europe as a whole, is requiring seven main points to be actioned. So these are software updates for the flight control computer, uh, which is fairly standard. Um, software updates to display an alert in the case of disagreement between the angle of attack sensors. Physical separation of the wires routed from the cockpit to the stabilizer trim motor. Updates to flight manuals so pilots can understand and manage all relevant failure scenarios mandatory training for all 737 MAX pilots and tests of systems, including the angle of attack system. And uh, it goes without saying an operational readiness flight without passengers due to the long storage of the aircraft. 
Yeah, fair enough. Um, and there's a couple of differences to from EASA to the FAA. Uh, the, the main one is that um, EASA is letting pilots turn off the stick shaker if it goes on. But okay. also for the time being, EASA is um, banning the aircraft from certain high precision approaches to airports. But Ooh. that's expected to be more of a sort of temporary thing that they're going to get rid of. Right. Okay. Um, and as we get, we were chatting about whether EASA and the CAA would agree last week when we were talking, and we, as we sort of guessed, the CAA did have to make their own separate recertification of the aircraft. However, they did this maybe like five hours after EASA, so it really <laughs> suggests that they took a big hint from the European yeah. regulator. <laughs> they didn't have much time to do their own proving right there, did yeah, they? Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, it was a bit of an interesting one because I think they were involved in the EASA recertification before uh, New Year because they were still sort of under the umbrella of EASA back then. Right, okay. So, um, the CAA has said that it will maintain close oversight of the 737 MAX as it returns to the skies above the United Kingdom. And uh, TUI is the only one with UK-registered 737 MAXs, of which it has six aircraft at the moment, all in Manchester, which if you've flown to Manchester in the past two years, you would have seen them sitting at the yeah. side. <laughs> yeah, they're um, quite conspicuous there in their yeah. blue coats. Yeah, so the airline has agreed to work closely with the CAA as it returns the aircraft to service. And while this is all well and good, we may not see the MAX in European skies for some time yet, because firstly, as we're aware, some EASA member countries independently banned the 737 MAX when it was grounded in 2019. Taking Germany as an example, they banned all flights, um, not even allowing ferry flights, which most others did. Right. So these independent bans need to be independently lifted by the countries. So EASA is working to facilitate this, but you know, when someone like Germany has gone so much further than others, you do have to wonder how keen they will be to bring it back, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And airlines obviously need to complete the actions that I just mentioned before returning the type to service. And given the current situation in Europe, I'm not sure that this would class as a high priority thing for most European MAX operators right now. True. No, I, I think they've got other things on their mind. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like, if they're not flying the aircraft they have, they don't need the MAX. Um, no, but quite. one airline that we need know is keen to start flying the MAX is Ryanair, even if they won't call it the MAX now. However, oh, no, Ryanair, it's the 8200, isn't it? Yeah, so they've got a whole different hurdle to clear because the Irish LCC is taking what it now calls the 737-8200, um, which will seat 197 passengers. So really, it should be called the 737-8197. Not quite so. <laughs> it's not so as catchy, way. is it? No, not as catchy, for sure. Um, but to accommodate the increased passenger loads, the aircraft has an additional set of emergency exits. And this means that it requires a separate initial certification uh, to the base 737 MAX and... This certification wasn't granted before the MAX was grounded, so that's now on Boeing's to-do list. But um, Ryanair is hoping to fly 24 MAX aircraft at the height of summer, and what okay. I find most exciting is that they'll debut the new Buzz and Air Malta liveries on it. Yeah, yeah, which uh, you've talked about before, I think, yes. Tom, haven't you? Yes. And uh, so. they do look pretty cool. I mean, uh, the Buzz one's growing on me. I didn't like the bee, but <laughs> it's growing no, on it, me now. <laughs> when I first saw it, I was like, oh my God, what is this? But now I'm like, let me fly on it. <laughs> so who do you think is going to be first in Europe to um, fly the Max? You know, do you think it's going to be Ryanair or do you think someone else will go first? I think it would be, it, it's a tough one, you know. I think it could either be Ryanair or I'm not sure if Icelandair might be 
interested in um, getting theirs up and running again. But I don't yeah, see Norwegian. Yeah, I was going to say Iceland rushing. Air. I think, uh, I think they're keen to phase out the old uh, 757s. Yeah. And I think they could be an early operator. Although I think all theirs are down in Spain. So they'd need to work out a way to get them back to Iceland first. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, I don't see Norwegian rushing. And. To, uh, there's, I think no. there's like Sunwing or someone, one of the smart wings, something, um, one of the Eastern European operators has a couple. Yeah, yeah. But well, it would be interesting Entair. to see. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> um, you know, like it's, it, we'll, we'll, we'll of course keep you updated when they do fly, but yeah, um, I've got my fingers crossed for Ryanair just because I really want to see them fly this thing. And, you know, I want to, f- I want to fly on their Max. Oh, so, good for you, Tom. Good for although you. The one thing that does really irritate me is that I last time I flew with Ryanair, I bought the little model that they sell on board, and yeah. I was hoping for a Dash eight hundred, but I got a Max. And <laughs> the winglets um, on the model that Ryanair are selling don't match the winglets on their actual seven three seven Maxes. Oh, how frustrating! Because <laughs> um, on the actual ones, the top because um, it's the split scimitar and the, the top scimitar is blue and the bottom is yellow but on the model it's the other way around oh how annoying you'll have to mm. get your little airfix paints out and correct that for them yeah. <laughs> oh dear well if you're listening O'Leary <laughs> <laughs> sort out your model yeah <laughs> So uh, another, sorry to be rather European focused this week, but you know, we are European and we like to bring <laughs> you the news from across the pond. But if you are in Europe, um, you may well see something very rare and interesting in the coming weeks. So if you didn't already know, which I'm sure you do being complete av geeks and listening to us prattle on every week, yeah. NASA operates a rare Boeing 747SP as a stratospheric observatory. Uh, so this thing's called SOFIA, which stands for the Stratospheric Observatory Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, and it's the only airborne observatory in the world. Um, it's got a 2.5 meter or 8.2 foot diameter telescope in the back, which weighs around 17 tons, and it pops out of a door at the rear um, once the aircraft is above 40,000 feet. Um, and because it flies so high, it goes above 99% of the terrestrial water vapor layer, and that means it can get a, a much sharper view of space and, and obtain observations that are just impossible for from telescopes on the ground. So, mm. you know, you combine all this equipment and all the laboratory equipment that's on do- on board and a very rare airframe. You've got to admit, Sophia has to be one of the most valuable aircraft on the planet and a, a, a spotter's dream, really. Yeah. <laughs> so usually this uh, lovely plane is based over at NASA's Armstrong Flight Center, mm. uh, which is at Palmdale Regional Airport. Um And they use it quite regularly. It typically flies for around eight hours, heading up to over 40,000 feet to get a lovely view of the cosmos. And uh, last year, it even found water on the moon. I don't know Mm. if you remember that story, Tom. Yeah, I gave it to (laughs) Andrew to write. Yeah, it was very good. Um, But since September, it's been a bit closer to us, which is nice. Mm. Um, It arrived in Hamburg at the end of September for um, at the Lufthansa Technik site. And it's been undergoing its heavy sea check there. And it's the third time Lufthansa Technik has been used to maintain the airframe. Um, You know, they they want to keep it flying until 2034. So it really does need to be kept in good shape. Um, But this week, it's been, been revealed that it's almost done and it's almost ready to go back into service. In fact, on Thursday, 
Thursday when this podcast goes out, all being well, it's going to leave Hamburg, but it's not going back to the States. <laughs> Instead, Yay. it's going to the German city of Cologne, where it will be doing some scientific research flights from there. And it will be the first time ever it's operated from Cologne. So, you know, if you're an avgeek in Cologne, get yourself down the airport because you could see something really cool. Um, all in all, they're planning about 20 flights over the six week period from when it arrives in Cologne. Hmm. Um, and the reason for this, to be honest, it's largely due, due to difficulties for the researchers in traveling back to the US due to travel bans. Hmm. Um, but it won't be staying very much longer than the six weeks because the, the lack of a single European sky makes operating in Europe very difficult. Um, and this is a pet peeve of mine and one that I regularly write about on Simple Flying. Um, but, you know, we've got multiple service providers to deal with lots of different um, air traffic control agencies, lots of different regulations. So in terms of operating Sophia in different airspace, it makes it much more difficult and cumbersome than it is in the US. So mm. it's unlikely that it'll be flying in Europe very often or ever again maybe so for the next six weeks Europeans do keep your eyes on the skies and uh, send us your snaps of Sophia if you happen to see it yep. Tom and will you be heading down to Cologne <laughs> well I might be heading up to Cologne um, if I can ah. Um, my my German it, geography is shocking, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, if I can make it sort of like COVID safe and depending on our regulations here, I might go and see it. But otherwise, if you're listening from NASA, please do send it down to Frankfurt and give me an email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an incredible bird and it's one that we very rarely see over here or mm. really anybody sees. So, uh, yeah, do keep your eyes peeled and I hope but, you managed to catch a glimpse, Tom. You know, I, I have noticed that it has the German flag on the side of it and I believe our sort of German space agency is a part owner of it. So hopefully... They are, yeah. yeah. And it always comes to Lufthansa for its uh, maintenance. So yeah. maybe post-COVID you could even get a tour down at the uh, Lufthansa Technik facility in Hamburg. Mm. Well, I'll have you to give them a mention now, which is the <laughs> same facility that um, actually built the interior for Merkel 1. So. Ah, very interesting. Yeah. So I think that's about all we've got time for today. Um we hope you enjoyed our podcast and welcome your feedback as usual at podcast at simpleflying.com. For more great content, you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media. Simply search for Simple Fly. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave us a rating on your favourite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.